want to begin with a saying, a quote, I'm not exactly sure where it originates, but it's long been said that there's nothing certain in life except for death and taxes. And we, you know, we've all heard that, and we kind of smile, and then we think to ourselves, yeah, that's, that's pretty accurate. But let me say this, it's not entirely accurate, is it? Why not? Well, it's not going to be because they're going to wipe out taxes, that's for sure. So, uh, the thing about it is, death isn't certain for everybody. When it comes to at least one final generation, Death will not be an experience for those that Jesus takes up with him on the day of the rapture. That is a certain event. So that nullifies the fact that death is a certainty for everybody in every age. What is certain absolutely certain for everybody that's ever lived is this. There is an afterlife. There is life after death or translation. Life goes on eternally. And so that becomes hugely important unless you're greatly deceived. And that's where we're at as we close out the Olivet Discourse. And that's what I want to kind of emphasize this morning. The certainty of those things which we find here. The very words of Jesus. We come to the last section. Finishing out Chapter 25. So, let's talk about chapter 25 beginning at verse 31. The first thing we want to look at here is the context and the outline. And this takes us all the way back to where we started in chapter 24 and verse 1. That departure from the temple that Jesus made with his disciples, their questions which led to his overview of the tribulation in the first 14 verses. And then he circled back, recursive section, he goes back and covers the second half of the tribulation a second time. And he adds more detail, specific detail, in relation to the nation of Israel. Then that is followed up by this section in chapter 24, verses 32 to 51, which emphasizes the imminency of the rapture. And this is another circle back, a second recursive that goes back to the beginning of all things here, where everything started. And again, the word imminency means the any moment appearing or coming of the Lord. Then that section is followed up by a couple of parables. The parable of the ten virgins, which illustrates the imminency of the rapture. 
and the parable of the talents, which ends up also connecting with the, the imminency of the rapture. Now, that brings us to where we're at. The section called the Judgment of the Nations in verses 31 to 46. The description of the judgment of the nations in this section is not a parable. The last two sections we looked at were parables. This is not. Now, he uses metaphoric language and uh, the words to illustrate, which may, may make it feel like a parable, but it's not a parable. Not indicated as such. Not as the previous sections. The account of the judgment of the nations is simply prophetic narrative. It's Jesus telling us what's going to happen at the end of the kingdom of heaven. The end of which coincides with the end of the tribulation and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, with that said, Let's talk about verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will set on His glorious throne. <coughs> First thing we need to understand here, it says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory. That's not the rapture. Now, that's a glorious event for those that are caught up, but the rest of the world's left totally mystified. And God's not glorified worldwide in that sense at all. In fact, it'll be explained away. It'll be absolutely explained away, and the world will accept the explanations. I don't know about you, but I've just, I've just stood in uh, amazement at all this emphasis that we're getting again on uh, UFOs. Oh, there's a new acronym for it now, but whatever. Uh, and... Uh, it's all over the internet, it's all over the, even the news media. But have you ever noticed we never get an explanation of anything? Because nobody knows. One account I read about this whole thing was the huge increase in UFO activity over the Ukraine during the war. And you start to connect some dots <clears throat> Satan is the prince of the power of the what? Air. Air. I grew up in Appalachia back in the 60s, and there was an absolute UFO mania back then. <laughs> <laughs> and Appalachian people are pretty, and I'm one of them, so I can say this. Appalachian people are very superstitious to start with. They get a monster for everything, you know, a ghost everywhere. Okay, so it fit in really, really well, I guess. Uh, it's easy for a whole populace to get caught up in something. Especially if there's no logical explanation. I sincerely believe that this is all tied in with a satanic effort to be able to explain away the rapture of the church when it happens. That's just 
Jay's theology, okay, that's not in the Bible, but <laughs> I just couldn't help but share that thought. <laughs> but the Son of Man is going to come in his glory after that rapture, after the Christians are gone, after the tribulation, he's going to come back to earth, all of his angels with him. By the way, it doesn't say it here, but Revelation 19 says we will come back with him as well, and he will sit on his glorious throne. So let's talk about the judgment of the nations. The judgment of the nations will take place after Christ's return at the end of the tribulation. Now, if you can go to Revelation chapter 19 and read all the way down to chapter 20, verse 3, it talks about it there in very symbolic uh, terminology. We're pretty all, I think we're all pretty well familiar with that. So looking at the chart here, we have the church age, this is where we're at, we have the rapture of the church here, the first three and a half years, the second three and a half years of the tribulation, the desecration of the temple, abomination of desolation in the center, then the return of Christ here. So where is the judgment of the nations? Right here. Right after Jesus comes back. Right after the battle of Armageddon. Judgment of the nations takes place. There are many cross-references to the judgment of the nations. It's mentioned in Matthew 13, 30, and verses 40 to 42, at the end of the parable of the wheat and the tares. It's mentioned in Matthew 13, verses 47 to 50, at the end of the parable of the dragnet. The parable of the evil slave that we just covered a few weeks ago in Matthew 24, 48 to 51 contains another reference to it. In each of these cases, those that are not true believers are sent to a place of eternal punishment. Even last week, in the parable of the talents, what happens at the end? The evil and the wicked and lazy slave is sent to a place of eternal punishment. So over and over and over again, this has been mentioned throughout these parables pertaining to the kingdom, uh, the kingdom of heaven, which stretches from the first to the second coming of Jesus. So the judgment of the nations. Let's continue our analysis. As mentioned previously, the angels will gather the unrighteous, also mentioned again, Back in Matthew 13, on two occasions, and in chapter 24 of Matthew, we just covered verses 30 and 31. Angels are mentioned in relation to this final judgment. The, the gathering of the righteous and the unrighteous. <clears throat> and all the nations, it says, will be gathered before him in verse 32. And he will separate them, one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, here's where we get a little, you know, we think, is this a parable? No, he's just using metaphoric language. He just said a comparison here in the midst of this prophetic narrative. Shepherds would separate the sheep and the goat, especially when they were put into the fold or however they were confined at night. Probably for good reasons that shepherds know and I can only wonder about at the moment. But, uh, they don't mix well in, at least, uh, in some situations, right? 
and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. So the sheep and the goats here, it's not parabolic. It's just a comparison within the prophecy. And so he carries forward the imagery of sheep and goats. So let's go back to our analysis. The word nations, he will gather the nations, simply indicates the scope of the judgment. It simply means that people from all nations will be gathered for judgment. Every person, every individual worldwide that survives the tribulation will be gathered together into one place by the angels. The nations, the word nations, this word in the English text is a neuter word in the original language. That has led many to think, well, maybe he's talking about national entities, United States, Soviet Union, France, Great Britain. It's translated nations into English, and it's neuter, so some have come to that uh, thought. However, the judgment will concern individuals. How do we know that? Because the word them is masculine in gender indicating individuals. So let's go, let's go back for a moment. And all the nations, neuter, people from all nationalities, that's why it's neuter, will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another. That's masculine. Now obviously it's a generic, I think that's the right term, it's not generic, but uh, there's a term I'm forgetting here. It's the masculine used in reference to masculine and feminine. It's talking about mankind. It will gather them all. So it's not about judging nations. Now, God's always judged nations. In particular, the nation of Israel. And a lot of other nations. And he will continue to judge nations. But that is not... People don't enter into heaven or, or based on what country they're from. Let's get back to where we are. Okay, brings number three. Christ will separate all individuals who survived the tribulation into two groups. Two groups. Referred to as the sheep and the goats in comparison with the practice of shepherds. This is all living, surviving individuals that have not lost their life during the tribulation. This is not a judgment of anybody that has died previously, saved or unsaved. Verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, remember that's the sheep, right? He will say to those on his right, Come you, who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So this is about entry into the kingdom. This is not about eternal disposition. There are 
multiple judgments in Scripture. We must not confuse them or compact them or push them all into one, as some uh, particular theological views do. There's not just one general judgment at the end. This particular judgment has a bearing on eternity and where they will end up, but it's a judgment of living individuals. They won't, some of them won't live long, but when they're going to judgment, they're alive. So we will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now, Jesus is using an illustration to describe the characteristics of the sheep. Then the nations will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty, or give you something to drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? They're talking to Jesus Christ. Okay, he's the judge. When did we do this? I mean, this is the first time we've ever seen you. First time we've ever laid eyes on you. And he says, and when did we, okay, when did you see, okay, I got through all that. Next slide. Verse 40, and the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it to me. Now, there are some interpretations that believe he's only talking about tribulation age believers that came to know Christ after the rapture. That's certainly a possibility. But I think it's also a possibility he's including all within the scope of the kingdom of heaven as we've described previously. So, going back to the judgment of the nations. Having separated the two groups, the king will invite those on the right to enter the kingdom already prepared for them. <coughs> so, there will be a group of people that survive the tribulation that are believers that will be allowed to go into the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom, as mortal human beings. The description given to those on the right is not the criteria for judgment. The description, you gave me drink and you fed me and you visited me. The description given of those on the right is not the criteria for judgment, but the characteristics of the righteous that confirm their faith. It's the same thing we saw in the parable of uh, the sower. Three different categories had no works, no fruit. Didn't grow and bear fruit. But the fourth one grew and bear fruit, some 30, 60, 100 fold. And that, again, it didn't indicate you're saved by works, but the works, the fruit indicates you're saved. It just depends on, you know, if you're looking from this perspective, you see no fruit, they're saved, and then you see fruit. But people don't see that very well, but God sees it very clearly. Moving on, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, 
Depart from me, you accursed people, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for you, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Now he's talking to the goats. He's talking to the unbelievers on his left. <clears throat> He is not, again, he is not saying you don't get into heaven because you didn't do works. He's simply pointing out their works indicated they didn't have any connection to God. No faith. And it's shown by how they treated God's people. That they themselves will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or as a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me either. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. By the way, there is a whole segment of Christendom today that wants to throw out hell from their thinking or from their theology. We probably don't run into people like that, but I've run into some. And there are those in Christian circles that actually teach, well, there's no eternal punishment. People are just, they're just kind of, they're obliterated, you know, like when, you know, they're, 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 they don't exist anymore. And Jesus was just using metaphorical language. And so they don't, they don't suffer eternally. What did Jesus say? Can you get any plainer than that? How do you explain away eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life? He didn't say to punishment. He said to eternal punishment. So let's continue to look at the judgment of the nation here, by way of explanation. The king will assign those on his left to a place of punishment prepared for the devil and his angels. The description given for those on the left is not the criteria for judgment, but the characteristics of the unrighteous that confirm their lack of faith. Now, here's our chart again. That at first glance is you know, a little much to kind of take in. But what I'm doing, we started right here. And we looked at, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. We started right here. Uh, in around verse 4 of Matthew 24. And through verse 8, he discussed the events of the first half of the tribulation. Then he went on, beginning at verse 9, and he discussed events in the second half of the tribulation, all the way over to verse 35. Then he swung back around here, and he came back, and he started at the midpoint, the abomination of desolation. This is actually verse 15 to 35, when he swings around here, and he covers that second half again. Then he, he swings around a second time, he comes all the way back to the beginning and the rapture 
And this is what he talks about in these verses in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, including the parable of the, the virgins and the, the, the talents and so forth. So what I'm going to do, just remember that he, it's that circular that's going back and covering the same information. It's a, it's a typical Hebrew way of explaining things. You, you find it in the book of Genesis. You find it in his creation story. Covers it, comes back, covers it again. It's actually a good teaching method. But what I want to do here is I want to take out all these arrows here. So we can just concentrate on the verses we've covered so far. 4 to 8, 24, 9 to 14, the second half, and he comes around again, he gets 15 to 35, the second half, a second time, he comes around here again. But the latter verses, verses 36, which is a, takes off of here, the latter verses are actually chronologically first in the sequence. Now, we're going to add something. The judgment of the nations be just from the first to the last. Another great teaching method, right? You cover it all, you go back and you cover some detail, you go back and you talk about the beginning and the end, and you, 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 know, you put it all into perspective. That's what he's done. In the Olivet Discourse. And here's where we're at. The judgment of the nations. So let's talk about applications. There is something more certain than death and taxes. <laughs> Joy and peace should characterize our life because of because our future is certain. We have we have we have absorbed that from the moment we started in chapter twenty four until the in the chapter twenty five. We've seen how what he said in the early phases of chapter twenty four connects back to Daniel and the seventy weeks policy. How specific and, and detailed and accurate that whole time frame leading up to the end of the 69 weeks and then, then we have some events that happen after that remember the destruction of the temple and of course before that uh, the, the Messiah is cut off and then we have that, that, that expansive time where we're waiting on that last week of seven years which we're still waiting on Everything he has said, the, the whole, the whole uh, discussion of the ten virgins. And I hope some of you had the opportunity to watch. Uh, Before the wrath. Before the wrath. Can't the name of it. I suddenly forgot. Uh, something about the wrath. Uh, yeah, before the wrath. Coming wrath. Before the wrath. Before the wrath. Before the wrath. Yeah, sorry. Uh, but there is such precision in the prophecy that we saw there as it connects with the Galilean wedding customs. And then you find it 
in Jesus talking to his disciples at the Last Supper. I will not drink of the cup again until I'm in my Father's house with you. Which exactly matches up. There is so much perfection and, and precision. And so these things are not spoken in a sense of, well, this might happen. This could happen. You know that Gene Nixon actually predicted that Kennedy was going to be Nixon. Was it 1960? Yeah. That's what made her famous? Yeah. Do you also realize that Gene Nixon also predicted that Nixon was going to be Kennedy in the 1960 election at some other town and place? <laughs> she didn't know. She got thousands and thousands of predictions wrong, but people remember one prediction which she <laughs> made that contradicts this or saying the exact opposite somewhere else. There, there's a whole description for that syndrome. God's word's not like that. God's word is absolute. You can count on it. You can see it. And so our future is certain. There will be a kingdom prepared for us. Look at verse 34 again. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the Lord. This kingdom has been under preparation since the foundation of the world. That's what he just said. He uses the same language about the foundation of the world back in Matthew 13 that he uses here. In verse 34, prepared, that verb, is a perfect tense verb in the Greek, which means it's already been prepared. Go down to verse 41. Uh, now we're going to hold verse 41. It's already been prepared. Now, I'm not sure what I said next. This word, prepared, is the word you find in the original. Matthew, Mark, and Luke that talks about John the Baptist came to prepare the way of the Lord. It was a word that was used in those days in reference to an entourage that was sent out before a king when a king traveled from one city to the next. An entourage that was sent out to prepare the road, the way, obstacles, you know, security, whatever. You know, secret service. Okay, go ahead, right? <laughs> Our destiny is certain. And now Jesus is speaking prophetically in this prophetic narrative. And he uses the perfect tense here, which means it's already prepared. He's speaking to people at the end of the tribulation. The kingdom is right there. It's ready. It's already ready to go. It's prepared. They're just about ready to step into the kingdom. For us, 
still being prepared. <coughs> now, that doesn't mean God, God has to work on something over time. He doesn't. He can speak anything he wants into existence at any moment. But as far as we're concerned, the preparation is in things that happen starting in Genesis. The fall. God slaughtering the animals and clothing Adam and Eve in the animal skins. The whole concept of sacrifice, which Cain didn't accept. The sacrificial system in the days of Moses. He's preparing hearts and minds and people and circumstances leading all up. All this is going to take place. Jesus has got to come back and take back the kingdom that was lost in Adam. Remember that chart we've looked at multiple times? Just like John the Baptist prepared the people of his day for the work of the Messiah, Jesus. There's a work going on in the hearts, going on in circumstances, going, in, going on historically. All this leading up to... Do you realize what we're saying? We're saying everything, everything is going right here. We're a part of what's happening now that's going to end up there. And it is so certain throughout the scripture, from Genesis to Revelation... You don't have to worry about eternity if you're under the blood of Christ. Our future is certain. Since the foundation of the world, since the book of Genesis, since the creation, all this has been moving forward to where we're going. in the world we live in and we are we're just we're encompassed by things that are fearful situations and circumstances we can't control evil that is running amok the failure of human government the collapse of society If we keep our eyes on that stuff, we're going, we're going to be disturbed continually. I do far better mentally and spiritually if I keep my eyes off that stuff. I don't want to be ignorant. I try to keep up with what's going on. I try to read a few articles and stuff, but I just don't want to continually subject myself to hearing about all the evil going on in the world. Or all the politicians promise them they're going to solve it all. Which they never did. But we need to keep our nose in the book. We now to keep our emotions, our heart, where it ought to be. Even any personal problem or situation we go through, that's, that's a true statement. There's another application. We need to share the gospel with unbelievers because their future is uncertain. It'll become certain if they don't, do not accept Christ. 
But any unbeliever we know in this dispensation, in this day we do, any unbeliever that rejects Jesus Christ, their future is uncertain. There's an old story about two politicians. I, I, I forgot the participants. I think I know the names. I'd probably get them wrong. It goes way back to prior to the Civil War in Congress and one and one, uh, I don't know, it might have been Coolidge's age. He goes back a few years anyway. But one congressman in a heated debate told another congressman to go to hell. And he got all upset. Hey, I did a, and he went up to the speaker and he said, did you hear what that representative said to me? And the Speaker of the House sat there calmly flipping the page and he says, you know, I've been looking at the rule book and you don't have to go. <laughs> That's true of all unbelievers. They don't have to go. Should be there. There is an eternal fire that has been prepared. He uses the same word about the kingdom being prepared. He uses the same word about hell being prepared, but it's not prepared for people. He doesn't say that. He says it's prepared for the devil and his angels in verse 41. Look at 41 again. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. What does that tell you about God's intentions from the very beginning? God never intended for anybody to go to hell. Jesus died for everybody and made it possible for everybody to be saved. There are those theologically that espouse the viewpoint that God decided some people were going to go to hell. That's not what we see here. Individuals will decide for themselves whether they go to hell or they go on to be with the Lord based on their choice. So there's an eternal fire, eternal, that has been prepared for the devil and his angels that will also become the eternal destination of the lost if they so choose to go there. By rejecting Christ. But their future is uncertain. And we've been given the privilege of perhaps affecting some to change that uncertainty to certainty through faith. This is a perfect lead into what you're going to study next in this class, right? We can have joy and peace, satisfaction. We can rest easy in the certainty of our eternal disposition. And we can also have some impact on those that are uncertain about theirs. And both should be true by way of application. The peace and the joy, the confidence that we have in the scripture and our own eternal destiny we should rest in that. And we should also be motivated to help others come to the same circle. I know. 
I've talked for the whole time, and I haven't got you all saying one word. Amen. <laughs> so now's your chance. We've got time. I know how you feel. I give you five minutes. I took forty-five. Okay. I, I was. I wanted to interject my. Uh, mantra in my head about watching news and looking at the, the world as it is and I recognize things that steal my joy and I, I say, nope, not going there don't steal my joy so I try to keep the joy of the Lord for Christ I think it's interesting that uh, the corollary that the duality that Thing and where it says, come, come you are blessed. Take, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, speaking to us. But in there, it says that place was prepared for the devil and his angels, not prepared for the people that may have that ultimate destination. Yeah. I think that's an interesting distinction. Yeah, for sure. Um, I just have a question on, I don't even really know maybe what my question is, but you're talking about this being at the end of the age, and so it's the people who are still alive on the earth. But it seems to me that, especially reading in Revelation, all the, they didn't repent and cursed God and all of that, that they wouldn't say, they wouldn't call him Lord and they wouldn't say, wait a minute, when did, we, when did we not do this? Because they would know that they had rejected God outright, and there would be no question in their mind that they had not done what they were supposed to do with the Lord. Does that, do you see what I'm saying? Interesting question, and it's certainly one that we should entertain. Um, first off, sometimes unbelievers refer to him as Lord, Lord, Lord. Look what we've done for you. I think it goes back to Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it'll be pretty evident at that moment when this judgment starts. He's Lord because he just wiped out the entire military forces of the planet Earth. <laughs> you know, and he's just gathered everybody in the whole world. So I don't think it's a Lord in the sense of faith. It's just recognizing he's in control at that, that moment. And maybe even some uh, self-delusion that we're going to be okay. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of unbelievers will tell you, oh, uh, I'll be all right. God's not going to send me to hell. You know, it's, mm -hmm. uh, that's just what comes to my mind. I, but that's... Well, that's what Philippians 2 says is that every mouth will confess Jesus Christ as Lord and glory of God. I'm sorry, I'm not here. In Philippians 2, Paul says they're all going to confess Christ Jesus as Lord and glory of God. Every knee will bow, everybody will confess him as Lord. But that doesn't mean they're all saved. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's probably the ultimate answer to the, to the question. Yeah. Jay, you said this wasn't an eternal judgment. And then you used the word the king will assign those. So it's like the judgment is given, but the sentence is not carried out until the end of the millennium. Is that? You're right. 
the lake of fire, the eternal, the literal fire will be their final destination, the lake of fire, at the judgment at the end of the trib, the end of the millennium, which we call the great white throne judgment. So, what's going to happen to these unbelievers here? They lose their life. Just like all the armies of Antichrist lost their life in the Battle of Armageddon, all these people gathered. The unbelievers lose their life. They lose their last opportunity. But they'll go to a place like, if you go back to Luke 16, parable of the, the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man went to a place of torment, it says. And Lazarus went to a place called Abraham's bosom. And yet, physically, their bodies are both still in the ground. The resurrection has to happen. So the lake of fire is a special place of eventual eternal uh, destination once unbelievers of all ages are resurrected. But they'll be in a place of suffering. Well, the rich man in the parable of the rich man Lazarus wants a drop of water for his tongue. So he has some sense of physical presence. I so you're saying their that, life is taken from them at that judgment at the beginning of the morning? That, that their life is taken from them? Yeah, so do. then all that's left on earth for the millennium is believers? From the beginning. Of at the, the beginning. Okay. But see, all, only believers enter into the millennium. They will repopulate the earth. They will probably live for extended lifespans. Maybe through the whole thing. I, we don't know. Only believers are allowed to enter, but a lot of the children of believers evidently do not ever have faith or ever accept Christ because they will be part of that final rebellion right before the final judgment, the end of the millennium. But that's a lot of stuff we, we haven't... Yeah. <laughs> Some of you have covered it in your study of Revelation. Probably all of you have I don't have an easy chart to throw up there. Somebody else? Is that all the hands? Okay, let's pray. All the hands.